Okay, well, we are in the middle of a series called For the Life of the World, and what we're talking about is basically this idea of exile. Now, in case you don't know what exile is, exile is this concept, this theme that goes through throughout the Bible from almost the beginning to almost the end of the Bible. And the exile is basically what happens when the people of God are living amongst a group of people who are not the people of God, who have not proclaimed to be the people of God. And historically, if you look at evangelicalism, if you look at the past 250 to 300 years of Christianity, our response has been, hey, let's build up walls. Let's make sure that the evil world outside doesn't come in and influence it in a negative way. And that's totally understandable, right? Because, you know, who, who wants bad influence in your church, right? But, you know, we build up these high, high walls and we create our own version of of whatever the world on the outside provides. Like we have our own Christian music industry, we have our own Christian movie industry, we have our Christian t-shirts and Christian this, Christian that, Christian romance novels. I've never read one, but I heard they're, I don't know, is it, is it good? <laughs> I don't know, right? But uh, some of you guys have read it, I, I guess, I don't know. But um, basically we created a world inside, we made a bubble, and when you're in a bubble, when you're in an echo chamber, that's never a good thing. So what are we supposed to do, right? And as we read through the scriptures, and on the first week, we looked at Jeremiah chapter 29, and the prophet there, he said, no, 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 that's not what we're supposed to do. We're not supposed to create a us versus them mentality. We're supposed to move into the neighborhood, and we're supposed to make gardens, which we learned that garden is a form of paradise, right? We have to create paradise. Um, we're supposed to share meals with them. We're supposed to marry and join the community, which is the exact opposite of what I think a lot of us churches have been doing for the past century, few centuries. So the main point that Jeremiah is making in that passage is we need to bless our communities, which leads to this question, which is, well, how should we bless our communities? How do you do this? So we use this weird illustration. Uh, you know, when I use an illustration, especially something that I'm not too familiar with, it goes really bad, but I took the risk anyways. But it's like an orchestra. I know, I know nothing about orchestra, but God is the conductor, and he's trying to create this beautiful symphony, and in this symphony, there's different sections in the orchestra, right, and we talked about how when God is conducting this music piece, what he's trying to teach us through this music piece is that we need to live as if your well-being is tied to your community's well-being. None of this us versus them thing. It's, it's none of this in order for us to, us to win, you need to lose. Like, none of that. Instead, what we need to do is this idea of, hey, we're in it together. I want to bless you because by blessing you, we can also win together. And that's the kind of community that God wanted the exiles to live in. They wanted to be a positive force in their community. And as God is conducting the symphony, he starts with the most important section, which I don't know what that is in orchestra, um, percussion? I don't know, right? But for us, in this illustration, it's this. It's relationships. Relationships is the most important thing. And so the first part of the series, we talked about how relationships, we should conduct it as it gives us examples in the Bible, which is the Trinity. That these three are continually emptying themselves to one another, but they're never afraid of emptying themselves because somebody else is there to fill them up by entering themselves, and it's this dance that happens where they're continually giving themselves up for each other. And we said that, you know, while they're doing their own little dance over here, the three of them, by doing that, that unit is now blessing the world. God created this world through that dance. 
And in the same way, if we could get these good relationships in place in our families, with your roommate, partners, whoever you're with, with your community, with your life group, then through that unit, you can start blessing the world in the same way that God did. And then the week after that, we talked about work <laughs> and how, like in the Bible, work was meant to be a gift from God, but it's turned into toil. That now we're living in a world where if you don't work, you don't eat, you know, like you don't survive. But originally, work wasn't for survival's sake. Work was a gift. It's what tied the community together. So if we could get those two things, right, relationship and work, then maybe we could start blessing the community that we're a part of. Now, remember how I said that in the Jeremiah passage, they were living as exiles in a land, and their new community were the people who invaded them. So, like, how do we live amongst our enemies? How do we bless our enemies, have good relationships, and have the right perspective on work? And today, we're looking at the third aspect of this orchestra, which is order and justice. Nobody here is excited about that, and I understand, because you've heard that word so many times in the past few years. But what is order and justice? What does God have to do with order and justice? Well, in order for us to understand why order and justice is so important to us, we have to go to the very beginning, which is what book? Yeah, you guessed. Yeah, my favorite book, the book of Genesis. All right, so I know you're like, I'm going to have Genesis 1 totally memorized by the time this series is over. If you do that, that'll make me so delightful. Okay, here we go. So this, we're going to look at chapter 1, starting from verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Now, most of you guys know that the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. It's an ancient form of Hebrew. It doesn't really exist today. There's different dialects of it. But the word here for formless and empty are the words tohu and vohu. Tohu, not tofu, you know, tohu, T-O-H-U, tohu. And tohu, like, you know how, like, when you translate words, there aren't really good um, exact translations? So the word tohu can mean formless, and these great scholars, they got together and said, we need to translate the word tohu into the word formless, um, without shape. But the word tohu also means without function. So in verse 1, which is the first part of that paragraph right there, it says that God created this material, earth and heaven. And then in the, next, in the second half of that verse, it says, now the earth was formless. Tohu, what, what that could also mean is, look, God created water, but the water wasn't doing anything. It has no function. Like, at, at this point in the creation narrative, water wasn't there to water the plants. Like, that didn't correlate back then. But God gave it function. So in the world that God created in verse 2, there is no function for all the things that God has created. Now, this might be new to you guys, but there's a lot of scholarship behind this, and we'll get to that in a second, okay? So this is why the world was dark. Next verse. There was darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So God's about to do something amazing. And then the first command comes up, which is, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, in our culture, 2,000 years later after the time of Jesus, since this being written probably 3,500 years. We don't know exactly when this was written. It was orally um, passed on from person to person back then. But when these stories were first told, people weren't thinking light as a physical thing. Like today we have science, we understand photons and all those things, right? But back then, they understood light as a non-physical thing. Like it's something that is either there or not, but it's not a physical thing. So when they think about the first day of creation, they didn't think about God creating something. As a matter of fact, I want to introduce you to one of my favorite scholars of the Old Testament, Dr. John Walton, this guy right here. 
Okay, he is a professor of Old Testament in Wheaton, from Wheaton College, and basically what he said is this. He said, Genesis 1 provides an ancient account of functional, uh, provides an ancient account of functional origins, not material origin. He's like, if you read through Genesis 1 and all you could think about is, there was a time where there was no light and now there's light. There was a time where there was no land and now there's land. He's like, you're totally missing the point. Like, yes, God did create all those things, but Genesis 1 is not trying to tell us about that story. Okay, so let's look at the verse again. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And we think, that's day one. That's the main, that's the pinnacle of day one. It isn't. According to Dr. John Walton, he says, the main point of, Genesis, of the first day of creation is not in the first sentence. It's in the following sentences. It, it says, God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And then, this is the key line right here. Next line. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. This is the part that would be the focus of day one. When God created the world, there was light, you know, all that kind of stuff, darkness. But God organized the light and the darkness. He separated them. And then he said, the day, uh, the time when the light is up, we're going to call it day. When there's nighttime, uh, darkness, I'm going to call it night. In other words, what, according to Dr. Walton, the thing that God created on day one was time. There is a daytime and a nighttime. As a matter of fact, the rest of creation is the same. So if you look, at, look over here, next slide. Light, we think God created light. Well, it's actually he created time. On the second day, it says that God took the water and separated from the sky and the ground, and we call that the sky dome. Ancient people believe that we lived in like a little snow globe, okay? And there's water on the top above the glass, and sometimes God will open the window, and then we have rainfall. That's what they believed back then, Right? And so here, God isn't creating sky and sea. He's not doing that. What, he's, what Walton argues here is that he, he's creating weather. There are going to be days of rain. There are going to be days without rain. And then on the third day, we read it as, hey, God created the sea and the land. It says that God pulled or, or separated the land from the, from, uh, from the sea, and now we have land and sea. But he says, no, that's not what the writer of Genesis is really trying to communicate to us. What he's trying to communicate to us is that God is now creating a place for food to grow and a place for seafood or seaweed or whatever to grow. So if you look at the first three days, God is creating the perfect function, the order in this world to grow food because we have day and we have night. We have rain and we have weather. We have all those things in place and now we could grow food. And then the last three days, like for example, in day four, we have the sun and the moon. God is demonstrating to the sun and the moon and the stars how they need to function you're going to come up when it's daytime. You're going to come down when the sun goes up, when it's dark, and then the moon's going to come up, and the stars are going to be sparkling all over the place, right? And then the next day, it says that God created, he put the birds in the air and then the fish in the sea. He's teaching them, this is your place to reproduce. This is your place to flourish. And on the last day, he created animals and humanity, humans, and he said the same thing, like, animals, this is where you are. This is where you're going to live. This is how you're going to survive. This is how you're going to do this and that. And... For humans, he said, for you, I have a special plan. I'm going to take my image, and I'm going to put it in you, so you're going to oversee all of creation. You're going to have authority over creation. You're going to be responsible for it. So Dr. Walton's making this case, and there's a lot of people who agree with him, who says, guys, this is not a story about, about God creating physical things. This is a story about God creating function and order. 
but he's like, but when scientists from the 21st century, when they read the passages, when they read the Bible, they don't see that because they're thinking in a very material mindset, right? So when they read through the book of Genesis, they're thinking like, well, if, let's just say this isn't a story about creating the, the world, but let's just say this is a story about creating a house. This is how he likened it. He said this, when scientists talk about origins, they want to study the house, right? But, next slide, God did, God did build a house, but Genesis 1 is not that story. It is a home story. He said, we're so obsessed with talking about how was the house built, but Genesis 1 is really talking about how the home was built. It's like, yes, we don't deny the fact that God created the land and the sea and that kind of stuff, but the point of Genesis 1 is that there is order in this world. Like, if somebody were to say, hey, tell me about your house, you'll say, well, this house was built in 19-whatever, and, uh, you know, and this wall used to not be here, but we built a wall right here, and we tore down this wall because we like the open concept, right? That's the story of the house. But if you were to tell a story of the home, then you would say, oh, you see this marking right here? This is when my son was four years old. I put a little mark right here. And, oh, you see this bed right here? There's a funny story that goes with this bed because blah, blah, blah. And there, the couch right here. The reason why there's a stain on that couch is because something happened. You tell a story that's more personal. Genesis 1 is a story about how God created the house, but that he made the house into a home. Are you guys following? Because this is, like, important for us to understand. Because in Genesis 1... We are starting to learn who God is. And what we learn about God is that God desires order. He likes when things are functional, when things are working the way they're supposed to, right? And he says that he took that image and placed it in humanity. And for that reason, humanity desires order also. You and I, we love order. You're like, I don't know if my kid likes order because, you know, okay. I'm right there with you because I have two kids and they're starting to, well, they've always been making a mess. It's, I thought they would ease into it, but from the day they're born, they just make a mess of everything. But, but think about sports. Maybe if your kids aren't neat at home, maybe they like sports, right? You can't play sports without order. You can't. If you're playing basketball and you're playing against a team and the team takes the ball and starts running around with it like a football, you're like, well, you can't do that. Because there's order that you need to have in a game. And the people who make sure there's order are the refs and the umpires or whatever sport you're playing. This is why, or we hope that they do a good job. But when they don't, we, the fans, we get angry because they lack order, right? So order is a very important thing. We desire order because that's how we make sense of everything, including sports. Like when you watch a movie that's totally disordered, you're like, I don't know if I understood that movie. I don't like it. Or if you read a book that's out of order, you're like, this is confusing. We desire order because that's how we make sense of things. And that's the same with God. And God loves sports. Now, well, he loves sports. He loves order too. But okay, here we go. Okay, so I have this game right here. This is called Jenga, but this is an off-brand version. Uh, so I don't know what it's really called. Um, but I thought this is a perfect way of demonstrating what I'm trying to demonstrate today. If you guys can't see it, I have, I don't know, several rows of blocks, Jenga. Okay. And um, when everything is functioning the way they're supposed to, this in the Hebrew is called shalom. Shalom, the way that we translate in English is the word peace. Now, the reason why peace is not the best translation, and as a matter of fact, there isn't really a good word, is like, for example, if this is God's perfect created world, if I start taking a hammer and I start whacking at it, you're like, stop, stop, you're creating God's paradise, stop it, God, stop it. And I'm like, okay, I'll stop. And because I stopped destroying it, you think, oh, now there's peace, because that's how we use the word peace, is when there's a lack of chaos, right? 
But just because I stopped hammering at this thing doesn't, in the Hebrew mind, that's not peace. That's not shalom. Shalom is when everything's put back together. Okay, and that's what, so when God created the world, there was shalom. There was peace in the way that they de- define it, right? But what, this is what happened. In Genesis chapter 3, humanity said, I could do better than God. I think I know better. God defined good for us in seven days. This is good, this is good, this is good, this is very good. And then humanity is like, hey, I think we got the hang of it. We're going to define what is good. And as they did it, they started chipping away at God's paradise. And God is looking at this saying, no, you're God, you guys are doing it wrong. Don't, don't, don't do this, don't do this. And they're like, hey, we're just trying to do what we think is right. And it starts to fall apart, and now we don't have shalom. And the act of putting it back together is what the entire Bible is, is all about, from the beginning to the very end, is humanity trying to put it back together, but they keep messing it up, and they keep knocking down more and more pieces. This is what this, the Bible is about. Now, before you can fix this, we have to find out what the cause of the problem is, right? Like, what, what caused this? And the act and the mission to find out what is wrong and what, what is causing all this destruction is what we call justice. Justice is the act of putting, back, putting things back to the way they were meant to be. So maybe you've experienced, oh, by the way, the word justice is a huge theme in the Bible. I know there's like a lot of stuff out there right now on the internet and the news or whatever, and people are saying, oh, you can't talk about justice at church. That's too, I don't know, what, what's the, they use the word woke, right? Uh, the word justice in the Bible is used over 400 times. By the way, um, that place you go to after you die is mentioned way less than the word justice. It kind of tells you that, that justice might be an important topic in the Bible. But justice is basically what is the root of the problem and how do we fix it? How do we bring it back to the way it's supposed to be? Now I'm going to move this out of the way so it doesn't get distracting. Okay. So what do we do? Well, God had a plan. Okay, so let's... Um, so as, as, as these blocks started to tumble and started to fall apart. God observed what was happening, and this was his reaction. Genesis chapter 6. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of a human race had become on the earth, and, the, and that every inclination in the thoughts of, human heart, of the human heart was only evil all the time. They might have had good intentions, but every time they tried to put the pieces back together, things got worse. And so God looked at it and said, oh, this, this is not good. This, you guys, every time you try to do something good, it keeps failing. <laughs> and so what, how, how does God feel about this? Next verse. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. It broke his heart because humanity, the ones that he loved so much that he poured himself into, humanity was vandalizing shalom. The world was falling apart. And by the way, this is not just a story that happened a long time ago. There's a lot of debate as to if the Adam and Eve story happened, but there's no debate on the fact that this actually happens. You and I, we've all contributed to the destruction, the vandalizing of shalom. And as a matter of fact, many of you have been recipients. You've been victims of the destruction of shalom. Maybe you've been racially profiled. Maybe you feel like something happened at work that was not fair. Maybe because of your gender, you felt like you've been sidelined, or maybe because of your sexuality. Whatever the case is, you've, we've all been there. Maybe in school, you, something happened, you're like, that's not fair. We've all been there. We've all contributed to it, and we've all been victims of it. 
And this is why it breaks God's heart. And so because of this, God's mission now is to restore shalom. Restore the world back to the way it was supposed to be, back to the way it was in the garden. So what is the first move that God makes? Well, we skip over to Genesis chapter 12, and we see that God's plan is first, I'm going to call out a family. He picks a guy named Abraham and says, Abraham, through you, or his name is Abram at this time, I'm going to choose you and your family to become the people that's going to start spreading. You're going to be different. You're going to be, you're going to be set apart. You're going to be living your life different than the people around you. And by doing so, we're going to restore the world together. This is that scene right here. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. It's like, you can't live there anymore because I have a great job for you. And this is the command that he gives Abram and to his family. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Abram, I got this great job for you. You and I, we're going to team up, and we're going to go to different parts of the world, and you're going to bless them. You're going to spread shalom one family at a time. Can you do that? It's like, oh, I think so. Sure, I'll, I'll give it a try, right? It's like you are the one chosen family, and you and your descendants, you're going to eventually fill the earth, and you're going to bring shalom to the, to, to the different parts of the world. This is your new mission. You and your family, you are going to go and restore shalom with me. Cool, okay. So let's see why this would work. Next verse. This is now in chapter 18. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on the earth will be blessed through him. Right? Like, this is my plan. This is going to work. For, next verse, for I have chosen him so that he will direct the children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. You guys are going to live according to the way that I tell you to live, and that's how we're going to bless the world. And by doing, the, and why? Well, how is this going to work? By doing what is right and just. If you would bring justice into this world by doing things right, we could repair this world together so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. I promised you that the world's going to be repaired through you and your descendants. And that's going to happen by doing the right thing and doing the just thing. That was, that was the plan. And when the other nations around Abram will look at his family, they'll be like, hey, they're living a different way, and it seems to work really well. Maybe we should do what they're doing. And so that was the plan all along. But it doesn't work all the time. As a matter of fact, it, it didn't work most of the time because we kept on failing over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, God has, you know, I mean, there was a lot of interruptions in this plan. And at one point, Abram and his family, and by then he's dead and he has all these other descendants, they get captured into slavery in Egypt. And so God's like, we got to continue this, this justice mission. Let's pull my people out of slavery and we'll start again by taking them back to the land that I promised them. Okay, so he pulls out all, well, there's thousands of descendants by now. He pulls, he sends Moses, he says, I'm going to pull all these people out of slavery and we're going to go on this 40-year journey and we're going to end up in the promised land. And in the promised land, we're going to start over again. But before you end up in the promised land, I got to go over a few rules. And that's the book of Deuteronomy. We're going through the Bible, by the way. Okay, and this is what he says about this idea of justice. He says this, when you get back to your land, which is right across that river, we're going to get there pretty soon. Once you get there, do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. So foreigner, orphan, fatherless here, widow. These three people, types of people, back then were considered to be the most vulnerable. You're going to see these trio pop up all around scripture. 
because whenever they talk about these three, these three represents the people who can't fend them from themselves. And by the way, the reason is because eventually when you move into the promised land, it's going to be an agrarian culture. You're going to be farming, right? So your well-being, your life is going to be dependent on how well you farm. So imagine if the Israelites, they moved into the, their new land and they divvy up their land and they're working the farm. And then we have like a foreigner come in. But by the time the foreigner comes in, all the land's been distributed so they don't have land. So they're very vulnerable, right? Or if you're orphan, because everybody who has land receives it from their parents, you know, it gets passed on to them. If you're an orphan, you don't get that opportunity. Or if you're a woman, especially if you're a widow, land usually belongs to the men. And for that reason, um, you would be also in the category of being most vulnerable because you're a widow. So these are the three people, groups of people that were often affected by injustice. So he's like, so when it comes to these three groups of people, please do not deprive them. Make sure you take care of them. Before you move into the land, I just want to give you guys this warning. That's, that's what Moses is teaching through God at this scene, okay? And he says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there, and that is why I command you to do this. It's like, here's the reason why this is important. You used to be slaves in Egypt. It's like, what is that supposed to mean? It's like, well, let's keep talking about it. And he gives a few scenarios. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. You're farming, you forget to do something, you left some fruit there. Or what's sheaf? I don't know what a sheaf is. Is it hay? <laughs> I'm, clearly, I'm not a farmer. But um, he said, if you forget it on the first pass, leave it there because then the widow, the, the orphan, um, the widow, they could come and take it for themselves so they could make a living for themselves. Well, let's look at another example. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works for, uh, of your hand. Next verse. When you beat the olives from your tree, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Now, okay, I know about this because I have a friend who lived in Israel who do, did this with the, with, the, with the olive trees. The way you know when olives are ripe is you take a branch and you shake it, and whatever falls is for you to take and the other olives that are stuck to the branches, they're not ready for you to take yet. But usually they will go back a week and a half to two weeks and they shake it again and the rest will fall off because they'll be ready by then. What this command is saying is, shake your olive branch, what falls, you take it, don't come back in two weeks. Leave that for the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner because they need to eat also. Another situation. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vine, vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Why? We work really hard for this stuff. We watered it every day. What do you mean we leave it for those people? Well, let me, let me remind you why. Remember that you are slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. Now, at first glance at this, you're thinking, oh, I see what God's trying to do here. He's trying to remind us that we were once slaves. Like, we know what it felt like to not own anything. So God's like, hey, remember back then you didn't own anything? Now you do. So have some compassion for the people who don't have anything. Is that what this is saying? It's possible. But there's another way of looking at this that I think is really important, right? Because what God is trying to do here, okay, is trying to give people a reason to care. Like the question they have is this, why should I care? Why should we care about these widow orphans? Like why should we care about them? And I think what they're trying to say here is this. When you were in Egypt as slaves... And slaves had no rights. No one cared about you guys. 
Oh, wait, but there was somebody who cared. God did. God cared when no one cared about you. God saw you when no one would turn their eye towards you. When you were hungry and you were clearly visibly hungry, no one looked at you, but God kept his eye on you. You were once slaves in Egypt, and God still saw value in you. Your value wasn't worth, your value wasn't dependent on what society deemed you as worth, deemed as worthy, but your value was based on what God saw as worthy, and he looked inside of you and saw something worthy in you. Don't forget that. This is what God is trying to say to the Israelites before they moved into the promised land. He's saying, make sure you don't forget that God gave you grace when you didn't, when the rest, rest of the world showed you none. This is why you should care, because somebody cared for you, God, when the rest of the world, the Egyptians, didn't care for you. As long as you remember that, you'll continue to do justice. Now, keep in mind, in the verse we just read right now, it doesn't say you should do this so that God will reward you later. It doesn't say that. It's the other way around. Because God has rewarded you, given you grace, something that you don't deserve, that you should do this in return to the people around you. Why? Because you have God's image in you. If God poured his image in you, and this is what God does, see people who are invisible to the world, then you ought to be doing the same to the people, same to the people around you. That's what he's saying here. So eventually they move into their land, Israel, and they build a great society. But as time goes on, they start to forget to see the people around them with God's eyes. And it gets so bad that in the book of Isaiah, which is a prophet in the middle of the Bible, this is what he says. See how the faithful city of Israel, you know, where Israel was, uh, has become a prostitute. Uh, this is basically code for, you used to be faithful to me, the one and only God, but now you're like flaunting yourself to other gods and stuff like that. She once was full of justice. You used to care for the people who were invisible to the people who, you know, told everybody what they were worth. You saw value in them when the whole world didn't, right? You used to be full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now you guys are murderers. And that's not it. That's not the whole thing. He says, he talks about your silver has become dross. Silver, a precious metal. He's like, now you're just full of impurities. You're not that precious anymore. Your choice wine, wine is a symbol of celebration. It's like, I used to celebrate over you guys for being such distinguished groups of people. Now I look at you, you guys are diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They care more about selfish gain than they are about being God's eyes, hands, feet, ears. And then this is the part that was supposed to really hit them hard. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless, the orphans. We remember that list? Orphans. The widow. They don't even listen to the widow's case because it doesn't even come before them. It's like you lost your way. You're supposed to be the people of God and you're supposed to be people of justice. You're supposed to be seeking out what the root cause of this so we can start rebuilding the blocks, but you're now part of the problem, guys. And if you read on the book of Isaiah, which I understand is a very long book and maybe you don't want to read it, but I, you know, if you read on, it, it tells you more of what God's going to do about it. Later on in chapter 1, God basically says, and so I'm going to be extra harsh on you. And it's not because I'm mad at you. I'm doing this because by doing, being a little extra harsh on you, I might be able to purge some of the dross. I might take some of the impurity out of you so you could get back on mission. And then he gets to chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, 
God, looks, God speaks through Isaiah and says, and I'm one day going to send a Messiah. I'm going to send somebody who's going to save the world. And the prophet Jeremiah even goes, goes as far as to say, and one day God's going to change your heart. He's going to give you a heart of flesh. Right now it's a heart of stone. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. It's going to pump again with love. And from that heart, it's going to flow justice again. The way that the Bible writers, the authors of the Bible, define justice is this. Justice is to make the problems of the most vulnerable our problems. We see the people around us who are suffering, and we say, hey, you know what? That's my problem as well. I need to do something about that. I want to be part of the solution, not people who contribute to it. You see, God wants to transform our hearts so that we start caring again. Remember, this is the problem of the Israelites, the, the people in the Old Testament, God's people in the Old Testament. They wanted, you know, they started off as people who were supposed to be set aside so they could contribute to the, 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 the reparation of shalom. But instead, they became selfish. They cared about gain. They cared about hoarding. They cared about power. So how can we get people who used to care, who don't care anymore, to care again? Well, it turns out what Jesus does is exactly that. He is in the business of transforming hearts. And if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, God is already at work in your hearts to transform it to, so that you start to have the eyes to see the most vulnerable in our community, the people around you. Oh, Jesus talks about this many times, but my favorite one is from Matthew chapter 25. This is what he says. So Jesus is telling a parable here. Then the king will say to those on his right, so these are the people who were righteous and participated with justice, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Like, hey, good job. This is time to celebrate. You did everything right. Everything I wanted you to do, you did it. It's like, well, what did we do, king? Well, can you tell us what we did? Well, it's like, yeah, I would love to tell you. This is what you did. For I was hungry, the king says, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. That's a good list of things for me to do. Did I really do that? Oh, no, I'm not done with the list yet. He says, I needed clothes. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me, at which point you're like, well, I don't think I saw the king in prison. I don't think I ever saw you naked either. Wait, am I missing something here? And then the king, right, he, like this is the response of the person he's talking to. He says, the, the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? Right, when, next verse, when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? I think you got the wrong guy. I mean, I love that you're showering me with praises, but... I think it's the guy behind me in line. Maybe that's the person you're talking to. He's like, no, no, no. The king replies, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. What he's saying is this. When you took care of the people who are the most vulnerable, it's because you saw in them an image of the king. You see a person who is down on, down on his or her luck, and you look at that person and say, wow, that person must have spent their money wrong, didn't get enough education, probably slacked off at school. That's what I think a lot of people think. But when you look at it, when the people of God look at these people, they say, there is an image of the king sitting right there who is hungry. I need to do something about it. 
There is a person right there that the whole world will just, just dismiss right away. But you look at that person and say, that, I see the image of God in that person. I need to do something about it. The reason why we care is because we have the eyes to see the image of God in every single person around us. What Jesus is saying here is this. He's like, you know what I'm here to do? God is going to give you the eyes to see the image of God in the people around you. That's why I'm here. Because when you do that, then you start acting justly. You start acting in the ways of righteousness. Now, some of you might be saying, like, but Kotz, you know, I've been following Jesus for a very long time, and I, I'll be honest with you. I mean, I don't want to say this to everybody, but I'm just going to say it just between you and me. I don't think I have that heart yet. I don't think I have those eyes. Like, the other day, uh, I just dismissed the person that the whole world would dismiss, but now you're telling me that I should have, you know, spent time talking to that person. Like, I don't know. I don't know if God is really making that transformation in my heart. And guess what? The first 500 years of Christianity, there were all these church leaders. They're, they're called the patristic leaders, but these people, they would talk about this. They're like, why, what can we do? Is there any discipline that we can instill in ourselves that would accelerate this heart transformation? And the people back then said, wait, there is. There's this one thing that you could do that's going to change us every single time. Well, what is that? That's hospitality. The church used to be known for their hospitable acts. As a matter of fact, there's a professor at King's College. His name is Dr. Anthony Bradley. This is what he says. He says, hospitality is justice on a personal scale. When you think about justice, you think about, I need to go protest, I need to go do this, I need to go change the system. What scholars are now saying is, no, 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 justice needs to start on a small scale. It needs to start from something very simple. And this person, Dr. Bradley says, you need to start with hospitality, caring for strangers. If somebody's in need of something, you invite them over and say, hey, what can I do to help you? And when you start hanging out with strangers that are not like you, probably from a different scale of, of, of the social order, right? Or people who are from a different background, different race, different um, cultural background, whatever it is. When you start interacting with them, you start to see the image of God in them. Hey, you and I, we're not the same, but I still see the image of God in you. And as you start interacting with people who are not like you, people who are more vulnerable than you, you start to see the image of God. So here's a quick summary. So we start with hospitality. How can I help you? How can I get to know you? What can I do? Can I, can I buy you lunch? Can we have lunch together? Can we drink coffee together? Do you want a shower? Come on over to my house and take a shower. You know, whatever it may be, right? When you start interacting with these people that you often just dismiss on the side of the road, he says this, it leads to you seeing God's image in the other person. And when you start seeing the image of God in the other person, you start to care for the vulnerable. You start caring for them because you're like, well, there's Jesus. I need to do something about this. Mother Teresa is very famous for this. She said that one of the joys she has every morning is waking up thinking, like, what disguise is my Lord going to be in today? And she cares for the most vulnerable when she was still alive, but, you know. And then caring for the vulnerable leads to shalom. What are we supposed to do when we're living in exile? When we're living amongst people who are not the people of God? Or in the case of the book of Jeremiah, what do we do when we're living amongst people that we consider to be enemies? God tells us, do everything you can to bless the community. How do we do that? By repairing shalom, by being hospitable, by seeing the image of God in the people you disagree with. 
with the people that are less, quote unquote, less, that the society deems as less than you. And he says, and if you do that, you'll be contributing to the life of the world. Amen? All right, let's pray.